This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Seva. I'm recording this from my home because New York and a large portion of the United States is under a shelter-at-home mandate. That makes my guest Christy Pambianchi a very timely addition. As Executive Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer for Verizon Communications, she is distinctly suited to explain how a $200-plus billion telecommunications company, which is providing critical infrastructure to the nation, is tackling the challenges of COVID-19. We spoke by phone on March 26. Take a listen. Christy, welcome to the program. I want to thank you for doing this during uh, such a hectic and unprecedented time. Um, I'm excited to have you on because I think you are in a great position to explain how Verizon, which is the largest telecommunications company in the United States, how Verizon is handling the spread of the coronavirus. Um, so why don't we start off with some of uh, you know the basics? Uh, first of all, Verizon employs what over a hundred thousand people across the globe. We do. Verizon has one hundred thirty-five thousand people worldwide, and one hundred twenty thousand of them here in the United States. Okay, wow. So mo- so mostly everybody's in, you know a big chunker in the United States. Your employee base is, you You touch all points, right? You have the retail stores, you have people in the field who are going, knocking on people's you know, doors and, and to get inside homes to, to, you know, maybe fix critical infrastructure. And then I, I'm assuming you have a vast corporate office as well. So you have a lot of different types of workers that you oversee and you have to address their needs. I, I guess that makes it kind of really interesting in, in how Verizon is thinking about all of this. Uh, yes, we do. We have folks in all kinds of roles. We have, as you mentioned, we have uh, technicians and network engineers that keep the uh, networks that we have up and operational, as well as service customers and businesses and network physical infrastructure outside to keep that all up and running and operational. We have large uh, teams that do customer care and sales uh, from call centers and from offices. And we also have a retail organization where we have actual Verizon stores and employees and solution specialists that work there and interact directly with our customers in, in the stores. So how do you kind of, how are you protecting everybody? So, because, you know, it's, it's, again, it's very different to say somebody who works in the corporate office who might be able to work from home versus somebody who is needed to, to go out and, and, and work on the network. So how do you balance that? And what are some of the things that Verizon is doing to keep everybody safe? 
The coronavirus, as it spread out of Asia, where we started our crisis response back in January, really uh, became uh, a big challenge for us, not only in that region, but then as it moved to Europe and the United States, it was very clear then it was going to be a global pandemic, which is what the World Health Organization deemed it eventually. I think for us at that time, uh, in many parts of Asia, Hong Kong and others, we had moved to a work-at-home environment. But as we got here to the United States, we had always thought that there were you know, thousands of the jobs that we had that couldn't be done from home. Uh, to give you a perspective, about a week ago, in the early part of March, we only had 4,000 people working from home. And now we have 110,000 people working from oh, home. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we've done just an incredible shift in trying to find really creative ways to let people contribute and do the tasks they used to do in the office or in person in a distribution point or with a customer in the field, uh, trying to do that over telecommunications or through our internet or through our web portals. And I think the customers have been great in trying to engage with us in that way, and our employees have been great in learning how to do things in new ways. And then specifically to the group that you asked about, first, for a lot of the people that we shifted to home, even though they could do their job from home, they previously hadn't been. And so we had to do training. We've outfitted people with equipment. We trained over 25,000 people just this week on how to do their job from home. Uh, and we are now, for some of the roles that can't be done from home, uh, we have people learning temporary work assignments so that they can continue to add value and contribute in that way. And then where we have people in the field, we've reduced our dispatches to emergency uh, dispatch calls and essential services because in a crisis, uh, governments around the world and our customers and, and businesses are relying on their network to stay connected. So as people are putting uh, as much work as possible to work at home or students are doing school at home or people need to be able to reach others in an emergency, we have to be able to be out there making sure that the networks and the equipment that people need are, are what they're able to access. So we've really reduced the dispatches to essential services only and then similarly used uh, our retail footprint. We've got about 70% of the stores uh, closed down right now, uh, but we have uh, about 30% open and we did a geographic map to make sure there'd be an access point within a reasonable drive so people have a place to go if they have something that they cannot accomplish through our online or telecommunication phone-based services. So when you mean people, do you mean, do you mean customers or, or do you mean workers or do you mean both? I mean both. So if yeah. a customer that's a small business or uh, a family has, a, has an equipment need that can't be met through an online communication channel and they have to come to the store, uh, we have uh, what I would say is a, a, a dramatically reduced footprint of stores open. As I mentioned, we have 70% of them closed right now. Let's talk a little bit about um, the like what you're offering uh, in terms of benefits to your uh, employees and how that has changed, um, you know, over the past month or two months when, when uh, you realized that this was going to be sweeping the globe. So we had, we took a philosophical approach from the outset and said, okay, what, what are we trying to accomplish here? Well, first we want to live our values and we look at this crisis as, uh, you know, in the nature of a pandemic, and if we look at what happened in Wuhan, you know, we see that, you know, very urgently and similar to some of the other responses to previous uh, outbreaks and SARS and Ebola and such, you know, reducing 
uh, movement was key to containing those uh, spread of those viruses. And so that was some of the strategy that the Chinese government deployed right away with the outbreak in Wuhan and many of the other governments in the region. And so we followed those guidelines. As it became clear that the outbreak was going to become prevalent in the Europe and the United States, we stepped back and said, okay, with our, the size of our operations here, how are we going to prepare for that? And we had some overarching principles, again, to, due to the fact that telecommunications infrastructure is uh, critical in a crisis and deemed such. We knew that we had to stay operational and we had to begin to prepare for that. And at the same time, we placed a great priority on our employees' uh, safety and health and wellness. And so we took an approach that said, let's design for all of the potential scenarios. And so we built uh, protocols for supporting our employees with regard to coronavirus, encouraging people to tell us if they don't feel well, so that if someone has coronavirus, they understand that they can be out on leave and paid. Uh, if they have had contact with confirmed uh, coronavirus cases, we also want them to tell us that. And they go into the quarantine period and they're compensated for their quarantine. And then we also created an underlying medical condition leave that people could access through our alternative work agreements so that if people had the underlying conditions that placed them at greater risk of coronavirus and they wanted to request a leave of absence for that, we have compensation for that. And then finally, as school systems started to close in mass, uh, we began to reflect on what would we do there. And uh, we also created a caregiver leave program that people could apply for, giving them up to eight weeks of compensation. And then if it continued after that, we would drop to a 60% pay benefit level, mirroring our uh, plans uh, of that kind. And so each step along the way, as the spread of the virus or the community or government response to it has changed, we've continued to try to keep our policies current. And we also mm -hmm. are listening to our employees and listening to what's on their mind, and they're giving us feedback, and, and uh, we build that into things that we think we need to address given their concern levels. And then finally, it just became, um, with shelter-in-place rules, they started really in uh, Washington State and San Francisco, and then California uh, took one on uh, about 10 days ago, and then New York followed, and now you see many, many states in the United States, um, India, a number of countries in Europe, Spain, Italy, Belgium, and others have, you know, essentially shelter-in-place uh, lockdown kind of scenarios. So um, it, it really became mandatory if we were going to keep running the company to find a way en masse to get everybody to be able to do, do, do their job or some parts of their job from home. And so last week we put all of our effort into getting people set up to work from home, even if they're caring for their kids in the house or other issues, elder care that have come along with the uh, caregiver uh, networks being affected by closures. So I know that this is, you know, uh, uh, unprecedented. I, I know I keep saying that word, but we're kind of facing something that we've never faced before, uh, certainly not like in modern times. So I, I guess my, my question here is like, how prepared was Verizon? Because, and, you know, is there now some sort of playbook you know, for this if it happens again, or if they're, they're rolling shutdowns and shelter in places that are going to be occurring, you know, throughout the year or until there's some sort of vaccine or cure for this? Verizon has a really well-established uh, business continuity and event management process and system in the company. And so we had that activated and in it, there was uh, high level plans for what to do in a pandemic. And we've run 
uh, like mm. most companies today with business continuity organizations. You you know you have preliminary plans for what you would do in that scenario, and you have some typically some you know straw man uh, documentation of what your playbooks might be. But then you get into then it's actually upon you. And so I would say we didn't start from scratch. Uh, we had the you know the straw man of what we would do in these scenarios, but. Then, as it actually played out, uh, we we there's a there's an hour by hour element to this. So in late February, we began uh, an HR command center that uh, has experts in it, and everybody in HR can call into the HR command center, basically flowing into one team of experts everything that's happening. I've got this question for my employees. I've got this issue going on in the unit here, and so we met, we staffed the HR command center with compensation benefit. Uh, labor relations, employment, and safety experts, and they field calls and emails all day from other HR people around the company. We then also made the decision uh, right in that same time frame at the end of February to put up a COVID-19 webpage, and every time we would answer questions or we would do communications, we would direct everybody in the company to the webpage so leaders and employees alike could be finding real-time what are the facts? How is uh, coronavirus affecting Verizon? What are we doing about it in terms of employee treatment, in terms of trying to support our customers? So those were some of the key things. And then as we uh, would, I would convene every day at the end of the day with the command center to say, okay, what were the kind of things that came in today? And I have two senior leaders on my team that are part of Verizon's business continuity emergency team. Uh, and then I'm one of the chairs of it. Um, but every day we would say, okay, what are all the things we dealt with today and what, uh, what, if any policies are we missing so that we can address things uh, consistently and not have everything be a one-off. So there's an element of what are your guiding principles and what are the straw, um, straw proposals you have coming into it. But I think being fluid, especially in a crisis, given that it changes so quickly, is really important. You know, we, yeah. like one school system closed. And so, like, on a Wednesday, we started to deal with the fact that, oh, we're going to need to think about this. By Friday, 48 hours later, six states had closed their school systems. And so we had the straw man of the caregiver leave developed, um, and we pushed on a Friday to get a uh, conclusion on it because I said, you know, I bet you by Sunday, 26 of the states are going to be closed. And you know what? There we were. Over 20 states had closed their schools by Sunday and into Monday, various counties in states that weren't closed. So imagine in four business days to go from one state started to close their school systems to half the United States shut their school systems down. That's a, just a massive shift. Then people started to ask us about it. And to be honest, we would have announced something that Friday, but Congress was debating putting out a leave policy. And the leave policy they ultimately passed that weekend um, had no provision applying to employers over 500 employees. So we went forward with our leave plan on our own uh, and announced it to our employees that week, um, uh, Monday and Tuesday of that week. And now that we have moved at speed to overall work at home, which we then started later that week, um, you know, for the people that needed the caregiver leave at the outset, we're awarding it in five-day increments because the situation is so fluid. And people actually want to contribute. I have people writing me emails saying, what can I do? How can I help? Does anybody need me to do more work for them? And so we're building that up as we go. Um, having both the ability for people to do work at home on temporary assignments or do things related to their job or, um, you know, given the extreme, uh, you know, extremities of some of the caregiver scenarios, they're just on caregiver leave. But the fact that our employees know 
that they don't have to worry about us trying to find meaningful work for them and that we're going to be compensating them is a huge relief because there's so much uncertainty about the coronavirus and they hear so many of their friends and other companies doing layoffs or not giving people benefits. We're happy to be well, able to do this for people and we know that they're here for us to keep the Verizon networks and products up for all of our customers counting on us. So, I mean, that, that kind of brings an, an, an interesting uh, question, at least that I have regarding sort of the role of government versus the role of private industry. And just sitting back and looking at how this has unfolded so far, I felt like many companies were in, instituting policies that were ahead of, you know, local or state governments and certainly ahead of the federal government. Um, you know, how do you think about that? And, you know, are some of these policies that you have in place you know, do you think that they will become permanent policies um, in terms of not so much related to COVID-19, but let's say if you're sick, right? Because this is this is sort of brought up this question in society, you know, should you go to work if you're if you have a cough or a cold or something like that? And, you know, a lot of people show up at the office or show up, you know, at their retail outlet or what have you if they're sick. But I feel like this this moment has changed some of that thinking. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and like, what do you think very broadly some of these things might, that might be more permanent versus policies that are instituted to, to address the coronavirus? I think it's great observation. And I think we should make sure we use this opportunity to learn from all the things we're doing and what's working and what do people I think isn't working. And for sure, I remember as a kid, getting like the perfect attendance award in school. I mean, we were constantly rewarded. You'd, you know, I'd have to be, you know, really uh, think about staying home because we were told you're sick. That's okay. You could go to school. So that's a context that many of us grew up with here. And I think yeah. you're right. The situation is making everybody revisit that. I think we're fortunate here for our employees at Verizon. We actually have sick days and we have short-term disability policies and we have other kind of sick compensation programs that, um, aren't legislated and, 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 you know, not everybody offers. So I think in that regard, our employees are, are fortunate and it's something we value. But I think things that we're definitely going to take away, um, for sure, we're all learning how to work virtually. And that's going to allow us to think a lot more flexibly about how we could deliver all our capabilities. And, you know, I think in the end, people miss the opportunity to be at the office and be with their colleagues and the social aspects of it. And there's some parts of their job they feel they can't do as well yet, but we're only like five days into it. And so I'm kind of in the zone of let's see what we learn and what of these practices and skills we're developing for this environment are things we want to continue. And also what policies that we've implemented, whether it's some of the leaves or some of the um, reporting capabilities and our web page and the way we're getting feedback from our employees, what do those things make sense to keep? And I feel, like we should, I feel like we should all be doing that. And I think there is a lot of a burden on, on uh, employers right now. So we're yeah. banding together a little bit to try to figure out, um, you know, I believe as, as we come out of the aggressive spread of coronavirus and we do return to some normalcy, a lot of industries are going to bounce back that are temporarily suspended right now, um, that, you know, like travel, entertainment, all the small businesses, restaurants, and things like that. I know people are missing them, and they're going to return to that. So I think this is also an opportunity for employers to band together and people in HR to work together to say, how can we think differently about um, labor shifts during this time and give ourselves more tools in the toolbox to deal with, you know, say, if, if, if there's no 
um, people allowed to travel and vacation, and those industries are essentially shutting down right now, how can other industries that are having to accelerate uh, pick some of those folks up, you know, maybe on some kind of an employment exchange? So there's a number mm-hmm. of us working in the background to say, what other creative solutions could there be to help society get through this not whole and come out the other side stronger and get back to normal life? And how can we do that in a way that creates less permanent disruption? So that's the, some of the things we're also thinking about as as a company and as, as an HR leader for me personally. Well, this has been terrific. Um, before Thank I let you, you go, is there is there anything else you want to add or that I should ask you or that you want to address? I, I The only thing I would add is one of the things that's been uh, that's always been true in crisis management, and I think now more than ever is communication. And people, there's a high uncertainty. People don't know where to go for facts. And so we tried with our webpage to be that source of what we know for them. And then we do a daily webcast that uh, has the CEO talking to the whole organization every day where they can write in questions. I'm there every day with him talking about the latest about our response. And this has been something that the employees have found uh, very, very useful. And so we're going to think about what are all the things we're learning from that as a key way to keep our workforce um, communicated to. So I would just offer that as any advice to anybody thinking about crisis management. What do you think has been the biggest takeaway from this so far? Like in in your, like, again, with the crisis management, if you could walk away from this and say, okay, I, I, I feel this is what I have in place and this is what I know in terms of this situation. And I'm glad we have this policy. Is there something like that, that, that you could point to? I think our ability to pivot and, and get, over 100,000 people moved to a work-at-home environment in less than five days was amazing. And these are roles that had never been done from home before. People didn't have the laptops or the calling equipment um, to be able to do it. And we moved on a dime and did it. And I think that's going to allow us to be a little more flexible and have a different paradigm on how we think about work and the boundaries of of work. I think we'll come away um, and want to really reflect on that. And hear from our people what what works from that as well and our customers. Okay, Christy, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and uh, I hope you stay healthy and safe. Thank you so much. Thanks for talking with me. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out breakingviews.com and subscribe to our various audio podcasts, including The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you go to get your audio fixes. Thanks for tuning in. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.